0: Good morning. Good to worship with you. If you were here this past week, you know what an awesome time we had of seeking the Lord. Um, Sunday night through Thursday night, we had uh, dedicated an hour, hour and a half just to pray, worship, and wait upon Him. And um, it was really, it was just a special time. It always is. It just seemed like there was a fervency in the prayer and in the worship that it was just, um, it was fun to be a part of. It was great to be a part of. We are going to be doing it again. Um, this year we've decided rather than doing it a couple times a year, we're going to put it one at the beginning of each quarter. So the next time uh, to join for a week of prayer is going to be the week of April 18th. That Sunday night we'll begin it and we'll go through the Thursday night. But let me just say, every Sunday night we are gathered and we are praying and we're worshiping and we're waiting upon the Lord. I love to have you come on out and to just be passionate to seek the Lord and to pray and call upon Him and um, just see what He wants to do in our midst. So glad that uh, you came out, glad you responded, and look forward to seeing how we are going to just continue through this whole year of just being a church that, that um, doesn't just uh, praise, but we're a praying church, right? It's, it's just what we do. We, we understand the importance of prayer, and that we continually go to it. So um, just a word about that. At the end of today's service, we're going to share in communion. You probably figured that out. Um, I didn't figure it out first service. I totally forgot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did. I'm usually reminded when I see, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the trays up here. Uh, but because they were all out there, I just totally spaced. So I'm saying this to remind me, not you, um, that we're going to have it at the end. I've got it written, communion. So we'll try and get that done. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to get straight into our study there in Genesis chapter 16. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Even this time that we had to just slow it all down and sit in your presence with other brothers and sisters and declare your, your goodness and your greatness and to, to just petition you for those things that we have need of. We are so grateful for that. We're grateful, Lord, that we have such access to um, your word, to study it, to read it. And I pray that as we come into a passage, a lot of us may not be familiar with you to allow us to take the application away that we ought to have and that Lord we would truly be those that are looking to you and seeing you and and resting in you as we give back to you and worship Lord with giving uh, give us the same joyful generous heart that was expressed as we lifted up our voices Lord you are worthy of it the gospel is is worthy of our investment and we're glad that we get to take part so speak to us through your word we pray now in the name of Jesus amen Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 16. If you're here for the first time, what we're doing is we're going through on Sunday morning, we're going through the book of Genesis. On Wednesday night, um, this coming Wednesday, we will resume our study through the gospel in Luke. So fresh look at Jesus Christ. I encourage you to come on out and be a part of that study. So here in Genesis chapter 16, the title is God Sees and God Knows. So this chapter goes we go from the heights of chapter 15 and the faith of Abraham and then we drop low to the faithlessness of Abraham and it's uh chapter 15 is a notable chapter it's where that covenant is made if you remember that that kind of alleyway of death those animals that were were lined up on either side and the Lord walked through that blood sacrifice and say I'm going to fulfill this one it's all on me um and so there is that that blood Abrahamic covenant that was established and he believes the Lord and he says I know that you're going to give me descendants and the Bible in the New Testament picks it up in three other places about his faith and the promise that he's going to have children Romans Galatians and James and says this man had great faith it's a an important chapter in scripture James uh, excuse me uh, Genesis chapter 15 You get to chapter 16 and it just kind of drives down low. You're like, oh boy, this is bad. And it's just nobody walks away from chapter 16 feeling real comfortable about what just went on. And I think even more so for us in our culture and not understanding all that's taking place and some of the cultural norms of their day uh, made it a little easier. doesn't make it any more right, but it was a little easier for them to come up with such a plan. But we're going to see the Lord meet a woman in need. He's going to call her to... Uh, uh, humble repentance, but he's also going to pour out his grace upon her. We're talking about Hagar. Let's begin reading there in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see that Abram's going to opt for worldly values over spiritual living. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now, The Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, uh, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. A long ten years of waiting upon a promise to be fulfilled that he would have a descendant. And from that descendant, many other descendants would come. That they would be more than the sand of the sea. They'd be more than the number of the stars in the sky. And here he is, we're going to read, at 86 years old and he doesn't have child one. And yet the Lord keeps on showing up over and over again, affirming that what he has heard is true. And that he has heard right that he's going to have a child. In chapter 15, it began with him thinking, you know what? Maybe it's just a servant in my house, Eliezer. Maybe I just need to adopt him and that will be my heir. And the Lord says, no, this is going to be a child that comes from your own body, Abram. Wait upon me. Well, into chapter 16, we find a modification of that. Still allowing the child to come from the body of Abraham, but now it's not going to be Sarah. We're just going to bring in another woman, a maidservant in the house, and she can provide this child to um, childless Sarah. We read this, and we're kind of like, if you've never read this before, you're like, what in the world were these people doing? What is wrong with them? Why are they doing this? And that's a good question. And it's, it's, they're, they're having a, a problem with faith, But in their culture and in their day, it does not sound anywhere near as strange to them as it does to us. In the ancient world, barrenness was a catastrophe. I mean, this was something that was painful. It still is to this day a painful thing. But the survival of the family line was of the highest value in that culture. And to not have a child meant that that would end. But I don't think that's even the issue here. The issue here is God has said you're going to have a child and I'm going to do wonderful things and that's not coming to pass. And that's creating some stress. That's creating some difficulty. How is this ever going to happen? I really believe the Lord has said that this is going to take place. We must take matters into our own hands and help God out and figure something out. And that's what they did. Now, for a A woman to take another handmaiden and offer it to her husband to have a child when she is childless was not all that uncommon, even in the Scriptures, right? We see it here happening. But there's some other places where it happens. Remember, um, we'll read later on, we haven't got to the story yet, but Jacob is going to have two wives, Rachel and Leah. And and then there's maidservants that they also have. And so Jacob ends up having uh, the 12 children of Israel by many different women. And that it, they were legitimate tribes of Israel. But it was not without its grief and without its sorrow. We can think of Hannah, um, the mother of Samuel, and how she was grieved. And how her the person living in the house, the maidservant, Penina, was having children. And how she just vexed her soul every day by mocking her for not having children. So these are things that we see happening in Scripture. Now, I feel like, well, if it happened in Scripture, then it's okay. Look, you're not going to want to have the house that Hannah lived in. You're not going to want to have the drama that existed with Jacob and his many wives and the trouble that came to the children, or even the drama we're going to read about here. The Bible has made it clear God has intended one man, one woman. The two shall become one flesh. How many? Two. Become one. Not three, not five, not ten. Solomon, not 700. Okay, I mean, the two shall become one flesh. That is God's plan, that there would be that beauty and that intimacy. And where that does not exist, we see that there is always heartache and trouble. So let me read to you. Um, You know, I'm going to butcher these people's names. They're not biblical names. But there is a, uh, about 200 years after Abraham, they found a tablet in um, what we would know as Turkot, or right by Iraq. And it's called the Nuzi tablet. And in this tablet, they found a marriage contract that really illustrates how common what Sarah is suggesting was in the ancient world. Let me read it to you. Forgive the pronunciation of the names. A marriage contract from the town of Nuzi a few centuries after the patriarchal period, okay? Here it is. If Gilimanu bears children, shanima shall not take another wife. But if Gilimanu fails to bear children, Gilimanu shall get for shanima uh, a woman from the Lulu country, a slave girl as a concubine. In that case, Gillimanu herself shall have authority over the offspring, So not only would you bring another woman in, but often the child that was born would be raised, in this case, by Sarah Sarah as her own. And so strange to us, but it was the cultural norm of the day. Text doesn't say it, but I don't think I'm going out on a limb to suggest that they probably, Sarah and Abram, probably heard Many times, why don't you just take a maidservant and give it to Abram? Why don't you just take your wife's maidservant, Abram, and and have a child? Everybody does this when you're in this circumstance. It's okay. There's no problem. This is just what we do. Well, for 10 years, they've resisted walking that out. They have suggested again Eliezer, but now, 10 years later, in the land, no uh, sight of a child In view and getting older. And so Sarai comes and he suggests this um, to Abram. You know, the Galatians were rebuked for making a similar type of error in principle. Very different circumstances, but the principle is the same. Abram and Sarai, they're not trusting in the Lord. They've been given a promise, a spiritual one, and they're going to try and make it happen through the work of their flesh, in Galatians chapter three three, the church there that began believing and trusting in Jesus Christ was now looking into their flesh to try and be made perfect in their spiritual walks, and it says, "Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh?" They were they were, they were departing from a, a complete trust and reliance upon Jesus they were looking at maybe well maybe we ought to be circumcised well maybe you ought to go back to the law maybe yeah we've got Jesus but we should probably have those things and then that will really just round us out that will complete the whole salvation experience and Paul says who's tricked you I mean who's twisted you up on this did you, you began in the Spirit. There was no works of the law. There was no circumcision. God showed up in your life. He transformed you. You saw works of miracles happening in your midst. Where were the works of your flesh? Oh, they weren't there, were they? So then why are you wanting to now go to the works of the flesh? You see, the problem that you, you may look and say, well, this is an issue I'll never have a problem with. Well, circumstantially, I hope it never does happen. But in principle, this idea of no longer trusting in God and trying to help God get over the finish line and looking for a way to finish something that is spiritual in nature, all of us have to be aware of this mistake. All of us have to be careful. I think about this on on a, a church level, that we must make certain that we firmly keep our eyes upon Jesus and the finished work of Christ upon the cross and His sending of the Holy Spirit, our dependence upon the Word of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, the evangelizing of this world, these are the things that are the Spirit. This is what we must cling to and hold on to. But you know, there's always that pressure to move away from that. This is why... And probably every time we've done it, a week of prayer, we always make place to pray for the Spirit to just fall afresh upon us. Because the the church began with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. We see in Acts chapter 4, there was another filling of the Spirit. But you know, we need to be filled today afresh. We can't do this work on our own. We're not going to change our culture, we're not going to change people's lives through any other thing other than the preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel. We're not going to edify one another apart from the use of spiritual gifts. We need each other and we need to do it in the way the Lord has called us to do it. And so we are committed to that. And you know what the Lord says? Jesus said, those things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. Those things that man would esteem, that would diminish The work and the ways of God, those are an abomination in the sight of the Lord. we got to be careful. Now, sometimes, you know, in being zealous, it's like anything that has to do with the world whatsoever. Um, You know, we got to, and I don't mean like sinful world, but just in the world. I mean, the church has struggled throughout her history with advances in technology and how to deal with that. You know, the church struggled with the printing press. And do we really hand out Bibles to everybody? I mean, to us, it's like this is a non-issue. But for them, it had only been among the, the leaders and the pastor. And if we give a Bible to just anybody, ah, they're not educated. And they might come up with crazy ideas. And they might not understand how it worked. And, but this was an issue of technology that they had to deal with. We deal with those same issues. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think these are not the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I remember... Some of you, I'm just curious, how many of you ever remember this kind of feeling in the church that if you ever put up slides in the words of the songs, that it was less spiritual than having them all memorized? Does anybody besides me, a few of you, remember this? And um, that's not really that deeply spiritual issue, but it it was an issue. It's like, oh, wait a minute, we're going to put up... Yeah, it's just now, it's just the work of the flesh. Nah, not really. It just makes it easier for people who don't know the song. Actually, that's what it is. And, and so there's all these different things that have happened down through um, the ages of the church. And I'm not, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about when it's a clear departure from using the tools that God has given to us. So I'll tell you a very clear way in which the Lord has spoke to my heart about this and it was before I ever moved out here. So I was 27 years old. I was back on staff at Calvary Chapel Vista and I was feeling the call to come out to uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. And so there was a lot of prayers you can imagine. Um, There was a lot of Lord help and reading through. And um, I found myself reading in Jeremiah chapter one, the call of Jeremiah to go and preach the uh, the word, and he was reluctant. I wasn't really feeling reluctant, but I was feeling nervous like he was. But what does the Lord say to Jeremiah? He says, don't worry about to say, I'll put my words in your mouth and only speak those words. When I read that in Scripture, it's like the Lord just slammed the brakes on and said, did you hear that? I don't ever want you to use your gift or the, the, you know, the pulpit as a place to communicate and drive for other issues. And so, I'm not saying I've been perfect at that, but I certainly am very conscious of it at all times. I know some people wish that I was more political, and some of you are like, no, please don't do that. Okay, Uh, this isn't my announcement that I'm changing what I've done for the last 26 years. For me, I know that um, it it is not like I'm oblivious. Does he even know about politics? Yeah, I know. I know about politics, and I've I've got strong opinions just like you. But you know what? When I walk in here and I stand up here here are the words the Lord has given me to speak. These words. And I know this is right. And I'm going to communicate that. I am not aiming at other pastors that are more political, by the way. So don't walk out the door and start hating on them. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, I know what the Lord has told me to do. And he said, don't pick up that mantle. You speak on the word of the Lord. And that's all you have to say, Troy. That's all I want you to say. And so that's what we've done. So, having begun in the spirit, are we now going to be made perfect in the flesh? And we're going to become, you know, political, or are we going to begin to try and transform things in other ways? No. And I listen, I, I'm grateful. If you're if you're involved in politics and you love Jesus, I'm thankful for you. I am very grateful for you. And um, I would encourage every you, every one of you to go out and vote and use the, the, the word of God as a guide to find the kind of leaders. That we ought to have. So I'm not against it. But when I'm here, I have one thing to do, and that's to communicate the word of the Lord. We've got to be careful that we don't move away from what the Lord has called us to do. Or begin to use um, carnal methods, fleshly methods, to do the work of the Lord. You know, when (laughs) we're coming, people said, "What I'm 27 years old, I've not gone to seminary. I've been a missionary, and I've been in full-time ministry at that point for almost six, seven years. Um, And somebody, when I got ahead, people always say, what demographic are you after? I didn't even know what they were talking about when they said that to me. Like, what demographic am I after? And they're like, you know, what kind of people do you want to see come? I said, anybody walks through the doors, welcome. I want to see all people walk through. I don't have a demographic. I'm just going to teach the Word, and whoever comes through... That's who we want to be there. And that was our approach. And you know what? It hasn't changed. It's just we believe, just let's teach the word. Let's love the saints. Let's evangelize. Let's be a prayerful people. And whatever God does is what we'll stand back and we'll rejoice in. And so, you know, when you first start out on something, you start out your salvation, you start out in ministry, it's really easy to be dependent upon the Lord. But you get down the road a little bit and then it begins to be a little more difficult. I'll give you something maybe that's even a closer application to your own home. You just first get married and you have some really clear standards of how you're going to live that life and how you're going to pray together and how you're going to serve together and the place and the priority that the kingdom of God and church is going to have. And then you have kids and the family devotions and all these important things. But then time goes along and if you were to look right now, Does Galatians 3.3 have any application in your life? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Is the the relationship and is the effort more about flesh than it is about the Spirit? Or even to you dating couples, you started out dating and oh, it was going to be pray together and it's going to be Bible study together and we're going to have clear standards by which we might walk in holiness and honor one another. And now here you are and all of those things are beginning to fall off. Having begun in the spirit, are you going to now be made perfect in the flesh? The answer is no, you're not going to. You know, I think an application in our culture and in our day is that just like for Abram and Sarai, the cultural norms were weighing on them. It was the principles that were so common in the culture that they adopted for themselves, as did Jacob, as did um, you know, Hannah and Penina, and I'm forgetting her husband's name right now, El- El- Elkanah? Yeah. And so they, they, they adopted those methods. It's not from the Bible. There's no instruction there. And, you know, I think what one thing we're going to find, I think we're naive if we think that in the coming months and years, we're not going to continue to see that ramp up of canceling people out when they don't say the right thing, but of becoming targeted no longer at certain politicians and no longer at certain celebrities that don't play according to the rules, but upon the church of Jesus Christ. I think we're naive. I mean, listen, I don't want it to happen. I don't want that to happen. I don't. I don't know one that's praying for persecution. But if things continue to go the way they are, don't be surprised if our voice see, is going to be attacked and is going to try and be shut down. And so, what are we going to do? Are we going to go along with the culture? Are we going to go along with the norms of the day and just begin to say what they say, so we don't have to face that kind of anger, that kind of hostility towards us? Because now maybe it won't be your you know, social media account. Maybe it's going to be your job or maybe it's going to be where you live or maybe it'll be it'll, it'll impact your life in a few more significant ways than, you know, your last post not getting out there, God forbid. You see what I'm saying? What are we going to do? I, I think we need to think about this right now and say, are the social... You know, uh, norms and acceptance, are they going to dictate how we're going to do We can look at this old story and say, wow, that was weird. They should have never done that. But what are we going to do when the pressure of culture and society starts to press in on us? Are we going to begin to esteem the things of the world? Or are we going to still hold to the truth of God's Word that tells us how to live a holy and a righteous life? Are we still going to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ? And we know what the image of Jesus Christ looks like. So we must be prepared for this. you got to be talking to your kids. You need to be talking to one another about these issues. So, having begun in the Spirit, are they going to be made perfect in the flesh? Well, let's just read the story and we'll find out. It's not going to work out too well. They'll get, they're they're going to have success, but it's not going to ring things about the way they hoped. Verses 4-6, through six, we see the folly of culture over faith. The idea being... They're going to reap the consequences of it. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, so Sarai, became despised in her Hagar's eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Abram's probably, like, Wait a minute, this was your idea. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Hagar gets pregnant, and now she begins to show the, the Penina kind of disdain that was shown towards Hannah, where she was daily vexing her. We get a little more insight in that story. Um, of what maybe Sarai was going through. But, but yeah, she's just she's looking down on her. She's despising her. Maybe she's beginning to even make jeers towards her for not having a child. And this becomes a point of contention. Abram and Sarai have some kind of strain. She goes, this is your fault. Now I know some of you are thinking, like, well, my fault is your fault. It was your idea. So I, we don't know exactly why she's putting this on him. Maybe because he's the leader and he fails to lead and he gives in. Maybe that's her point. That would be an excellent point, right? Um, the Bible doesn't say, but I just wonder if the idea is like, listen, I didn't actually want you to take her. I was just giving you an option and I was hoping you wouldn't take her. I was wanting you to see if you love me or not. You obviously you don't. This is your fault. You embraced her. That's your, this is your doing. Or maybe it was that maybe Abram and Hagar were a little too committed to the process, okay? And it wasn't, now all of a sudden there was a tenderness that was starting to be shown towards Hagar that had never been there before. Not hard to imagine. Whatever it is, (laughs) Sarah's like, you did this. And Abram seems to take responsibility. He says, all right, we'll do, you know, you can do whatever you want with her. But that's a bad move there. So they, 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 they come up with a solution. It's very common. This is how we're going to you know, walk out our faith now. And it's going to change. We're not going to wait upon the Lord for you. We're going to do something different. And now stress becomes enters into the household between Hagar and Sarai, Sarai and Abram. And then Abram again doesn't take leadership and allows Sarah to deal with uh, Hagar how she wants. And she treats her harshly. To the point that eventually she can take it no longer and she flees and she runs away. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 9. She's going to meet the Lord, Hagar, and the Lord's going to instruct her to return with humility. He says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Okay, there's a lot that's going on here. The angel of the Lord in verse 7. What is this? First of all, notice that the word Lord is all capitals, capital L O R D. You you've seen this many times in scripture. Maybe you don't know why it's like that. It's there because it's telling you that this is a reference to not master lord but this title the, the word lord here as a reference to the covenant name of god think yahweh think jehovah so this is an angel a messenger of yahweh now in verse 13 we're going to find out that that messenger is the lord himself so what we have going on here this conversation between hagar and the angel of the lord this is between hagar and the second person of the Trinity. This is an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, That's so we call them Christophanes. And again, verse thirteen makes this very clear that this is um, the Lord Himself, and she is going to have an encounter. But you know, it, there's there's something in, and maybe you see it too. Maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. But there's but this story just kind of rings similar to when Jesus came to the woman at the well in Samaria, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of feel, I mean, they're at a well. You have a woman that's kind of an outcast. um, And and, I don't know, you have a compassion of the Lord drawing uh, this woman to himself. He calls her to repentance. He says, "What, "What? where are you going? Why are you leaving? Well, I'm fleeing. Yeah, You need to go back and you need to submit. You've not been submissive. And so there's a call to, an unstated call to repentance. You're going this way, you need to go that way. You need to go back. And this is what happens when we encounter the Lord, isn't it? When we encounter the Lord, He calls us to repentance. He comes and He meets us in the wilderness for sure. But one of the things that He does is He wants to call our attention to the things that have brought us to the misery and the pain that we're in. And it is 100% of the time our sin that does that. And so, a lot of similarities here uh, are going on. It says you need to go back. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. You're going to have so many, you won't even be able to count them. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, or Ishmael, The Lord hears because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. Every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. So four prophecies are given about him. None of them are meant to be derogatory, by the way. This is the Lord meeting a woman that's in desperate need and having compassion on her. He says, you're going to have a child. And he's going to be a son. But what... The Lord says to her, sounds very, very similar to what the Lord says to Abram, isn't it? You're going to have a son and you're going to have more descendants than can even be numbered. I'm sure she's heard this before. I am 100% confident she was familiar with that encounter that Abram had had and that she was being brought in by Sarai. Now, the physical promise that is given to Eventually, Isaac, right, the son that Abram will have with Sarai, um, that physical promise is going to be the same. But what's different is the spiritual promise. It's not going to be the seed, it's not going to come through Hagar, but it's going to come through Sarai. Through Sarah. She's going to be the one that's going to have that seed and eventually will be in the line of Jesus and the Messiah will come. But on the physical level, it sounds pretty similar. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. Observe it, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram... Named his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So she's journeying down. We get some geographical uh, notes. Or you can put that map up. And that circle up at the top is um, where she would have began, up there in Hebron. And so that's where the tents were of Abraham. That's where the family was. And so then she travels down. As she comes down that, that circle that's there on the left for you, That's uh, uh, around Beret or uh, Berlahoroi, that well. It's right in that area. The other circle to the right is Kadesh. So she's down south. And um, that body of water that is to the right of Hebron, that top circle, that's the Dead Sea. So she's heading south. Why is she heading south? We're not told. But where is she from? She's from Egypt. And it would seem like, based on the geography that she's heading back home. But, but is it really her home anymore? Who is she going to... Where is she going to go? Who's going to take care of her? It, do you think it's possible she's feeling abandoned and left all by herself? I think it's not only likely, it's exactly what's happening. That's why when the Lord comes to her and speaks to her about her sin, and when He speaks to her about the promise... Her response is, you have seen me. You've seen me. What a beautiful encounter this is. The second person of the Godhead coming to this one woman. Who is she? She has no name. She has no title really in the world. Nobody knows about her. And yet the Lord has set his kindness and his grace upon this woman. Don't think this encounter with Hagar is a small thing. Because Abram and Sarai has sinned. This is a this is an act of the grace of God coming to a woman in need. She was kicked out. She was, if she thought she had found a special place now with Abram, because Sarah couldn't give a child, but now I've given a child, I'm gonna become the one, which seems to be the indication based on her response to Sarai, that dream was crushed. And then she was kicked out and she left a family. That she had been with for some time and she is all alone and she's pregnant. Where does she go? How does she survive? And it appears she's just heading home and the Lord meets her. But why doesn't the Lord meet her like a mile away? Why does he wait for her to travel days? Well, I'll suggest to you again one idea. Maybe she doesn't want to meet the God of Abraham right now. Maybe she doesn't really care to meet the God of Abraham and Sarai who have just kicked her out of the house. Who have brought her into a situation to bear a child and now she's pregnant and now she's turned out. And when, oh, God's given this promise. Well, you know, you're not the one now. Maybe she would have a little hard time with this God. Maybe she wasn't ready to meet because the bad witness of Sarai and Abram could have made her unwilling to meet this Lord. That they are worshiping. But you know, a little time, a little journey, a little desperation. And the Lord shows up and she's ready. She's ready to see. As a matter of fact, when he comes to her, she is so overwhelmed. She's like, you have seen me? Who am I that you would see me? But you've seen me. And I just want you to know the Lord sees you. The Lord sees where you are. He understands the pain. Maybe nobody else. Maybe nobody else knows what's going on in your life, and maybe like Hagar, you've kind of brought it upon yourself. You've created a storm, and now that storm is dumping on your life, and nobody knows, and you're bearing it all alone. Well, there's one who sees, and he knows. And just as the pre-incarnate Christ came, Christ came, the Messiah came. And he showed up. You see him coming to Bethlehem. You see him being raised in Nazareth. You see him ministering in Capernaum. You see him being crucified on Calvary. You see him rising from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father. But he's also coming to you today. Just like the woman of Samaria had an encounter with Jesus when he was alive on earth. And now Hagar's having an encounter with the second person of the Godhead. The Lord is coming because he sees you. But there's two things that astound her here. One is that the Lord sees her. But what's the other part? That she sees the Lord. That the one that in the middle of verse 13 says, Have I also here seen him who sees me? I have had an encounter with the God of the universe. The God that Abram's been worshiping. She's amazed and she is humbled. And so each and every one of us should be when the Lord comes to us and He calls us to Himself. Let me read to you in closing here. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28-30. through 30. Come to me, all you who labor. These are the words of Jesus. Can't you almost hear Him just saying these very words to Hagar? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so she's going to return, as we'll see in the coming chapters. She's going to go back and she is, you know, taking the the instruction of the Lord. And she's going to become the mother of Ishmael. And Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And they are plentiful and they are um, innumerable. Um, And uh, so the word of prophecy comes to pass. Uh, for uh, Hagar. As we close it here, made some applications. We've talked about not trying to perfect things in our flesh, not giving up on walking after the things of the Spirit and doing it the way the Lord has laid it out. And if that's happened, the Lord's not running away from you. He's running to you. He's coming to you. And He's calling you to begin to depend upon Him again. Maybe there's an area where you have failed in a relationship and you, maybe you've been harsh to somebody or maybe you have disrespected somebody and you need to go and you need to make it right. Go and make it right. Maybe you needed to hear that God sees you. That is so true. And you should be amazed, as we all should be amazed, that God is willing to be seen by us. He wants you to have a relationship with Him. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you meet Egyptian servants that have been cast aside and you meet people like us. People that are on the run, people whose lives are hurting and are broken, people who have not seen you and you come and you show up and we thank you, Lord, that you show up in our lives. And I pray, Lord, there would be those that do not know you that would reach out to you. If you're here today and you have never received Christ as your Savior, Understand that he's come into this room and he's speaking to you right now. And if you have an awareness that this is the one that you need to enter into a relationship with, if you have that awareness that there is sin in your life and that you must come to him and have forgiveness, don't think yourself wise. Think yourself favored that God has revealed this to you. He's drawing you to himself. He sees you. Are you willing to see him and follow after him? Maybe you're a believer and the Lord has spoken to you in one of these other ways. I want to give you just a moment to respond to the Lord and then we're going to begin to share in communion. Lord, thank you that you're patient with us, that you allow us to to return to you, to be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit, to set the priorities of our life straight again. I pray that we have heard you this morning. We've seen your compassion and we see you as a God of grace, but that we also see that you're a God that calls us to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed this morning, we're going to give you a chance to come up here in in the front in just a moment and pray with a brother or sister. But right now, I want to share together in communion. If you did not receive a communion cup when you came in, if you would raise your hand up way high and leave it there until one of the ushers comes around, that would be great. And so, got a few people up here. Just leave it up there. And um, as they're getting those around, um, you can try and start breaking into this thing. If you just hold the bread and the cup, and we'll share it together. But what is this communion that we're doing? Well, Jesus established this as a means of remembering what he did for us on the cross. Do you remember in chapter 15, we studied it last week, that God made a covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. And there was a sign that was associated with that covenant It was the sign of circumcision. There also was a Mosaic covenant between Moses, God established with Moses and the people of Israel. And there was a sign for that covenant, and it was the Sabbath day rest. The covenant was made with Noah. And the sign of that covenant was a rainbow. Well, in Jeremiah chapter 31, there was a prophecy given that there would be a new covenant that would be established And then when Jesus was with the disciples just before he was to go to the cross, his disciples were there and he says, This is the cup of the new covenant. And he's referring to the cup of wine that they were drinking. And he also included the element of the bread. These elements were always part of the Passover meal. But now he was putting meaning and significance to these that they had never experienced before. The bread, he says, represents my body, which was broken, will be broken for you, and indeed it was. He gave his cheek to those that were ripping out his beard. They placed a crown of thorns on his, thorns on his head. He gave his back to those that scourged him. He offered his hands and his feet for nails to be driven through and put and nailed to the cross. His body was being broken, that we might be made whole. The wrath of God was being poured out on him and his body that we might not have to experience the wrath of the Lord. And then he got that cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you for the remission of sin. The sign of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus. And we remember that sign as we drink this cup. We remember his body. As we eat this bread. Though it's I I love the fact that the Lord has established this remembrance in a way that it touches our senses. I mean, we don't get much of a crunch from this thing, right? Okay, but I mean, typically when we'll share, we'll crunch and we think of the breaking and the ripping and the tearing of the body of the Lord. We drink the cup and it touches, it's sweet, but it's also bitter. It was sweet for the Lord to go to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame and endured the cross. It was sweet for him to be obedient to the Father, but it was a bitter cup. He even said, if possible, let this cup pass from me. So as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We're acknowledging that he died for us. We're acknowledging that this second person of the Godhead has come To us and he's offered himself as a sacrifice. I want to first just eat the bread and as you eat that bread just take a moment and ponder before we drink the cup together of the Lord's body being broken for you. Let's partake together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your body, that you are born to have a body that it might be offered up. He also said to take the cup and to drink it and to remember that he offered himself up, to remember that this is how our sins are forgiven. So as we drink this, let's remember That we are clean before the Lord now. Let's partake together. Lord, no words we ever share or declare, no songs we ever sing will be enough to say thank you. Or to give you the praise or to give you the glory that you are deserving of. But Lord, we are grateful here this morning to be redeemed. And to be redeemed by your body and blood that speaks to us of your great love. Not bulls, not goats, not lambs, but of the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Redeemed with your body and your blood. How could we ever doubt that you see us? How could we ever doubt that you love us? Remind us of your love afresh. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're up in in front to pray with you. If you need prayer this morning, don't walk out the door. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe the Lord wants to meet with you. I know many of you have already prayed, right, where you sat. But sometimes it's good just to get somebody else to agree with us on those things that God is speaking into our life. Look forward to seeing you back out here tonight at 6 o'clock for prayer. As you go, go in the joy of the Lord. Go in the blessing of the Lord. And uh, remember that God has brought you near to himself. Once strangers of the promises and the covenants of God, but now you've been brought near. You and me and every believer, we are in a covenant with God. And that covenant is to bring blessing and grace to our life. So let's go out with joy. We've got a great song to sing here that just reminds us of what the Lord did on the cross and a great opportunity for us just to express to the Lord our love and our thanksgiving. Let's sing it together.